What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that the Jews and the Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace, they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we're going to read from Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. And of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of this great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you that you give us a guide to life and you give us a guide, uh, a book of truth. We'd ask that your Holy Spirit might allow us to understand your word and that your Holy Spirit would also allow us to apply it to our lives in each and every day. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. I was in a church that had belonged to this denomination that they loved and treasured for like 85 or 90 years. And there were many good things about this denomination to be appreciated. But they had started moving a track away from what the Bible taught. And it got further and further and further until it became clear they were not coming back. And they started asking more and more things of their churches that would identify them with this track. And this church that I was in said, uh, we've been trying 
for decades, and now we cannot do this any longer. We cannot take these further steps. And so this church came to the point that they felt that they had to leave their long-standing and beloved denomination. We can identify that. We're in the Presbyterian Church in America, and in 1973, we left our mother denomination because we said we just can't do this anymore. It's against the word of God. It's against the revelation of God. It's against the character of God. So you can see how torn you would be. And, and the people in this church were torn and they were sad, but they were determined. And in order to do things decently and in order, they asked the uh, area superintendent of that denomination to come to the church. And uh, they even said, well, Jerry, we would like for you to debate him. And I said, I'm not sure that's very gracious. <laughs> and said, well, let's bring someone else in to debate him. And we finally decided, no, we're going to do all courtesy, all respect, and all appreciation for him and his service and his role. And they said, well, we're afraid that, you know, he's good at his job and he'll persuade enough not to do all these stuff. I said, no, we must honor him. He's an ordained minister of the Church of Jesus Christ, and he has served the Lord, and we will give him all honor and respect. And so he came, and we had a meeting on an evening, and it lasted from 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. And the first hour, he was great. You could see he was practiced, he was prepared, he was proficient, and he gave a good case for staying in the denomination. And so many hearts fell, and it was like, okay, we, we're stuck. And then when we got into the second hour, he became a little tired. And then more things started coming out until he finally made some statements. He said, well, someone asked him. We got to a question and answer period. And someone asked him about gender and sex. And he said, well, God created Adam, and he created Eve, and then he created some others. And so some eyebrows went up. And then they asked him about uh, uh, the uniqueness of Christ and the reliability of Scripture. And he said, well, um, you know, God spoke through Muhammad, the prophet, the same way he spoke through Jesus, the prophet. And God speaks through the Quran in the same way that it speaks through Jesus, and people can come to God through Islam the same that they can come through Christianity. And it has to do with where you're born and what you're born into. And God is cognizant of that. And he hears the, the, uh, the heart cry and he responds wherever you're at, whatever you're coming through. It made a lot of sense. And he presented it very well. And then we had a young man there. And uh, he was like, fourth, fifth generation in that area, and he was a school board member, but he was in his 30s, and he had, I think they had three children, and he stood up and he said, well, sir, if that is true, why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus have to die? And we were on a whole different level all of a sudden. Because Muhammad was known by his military victories, his conquering armies, his imposition 
of Muslim rule. Muslim means submit. He was known for his multiple wives. And he didn't die. He stepped on the dome of the, uh, in the mosque in Jerusalem and was taken to heaven. Buddha, as far as we know, didn't die for any particular people. In other words, Jesus is separate in that he said his purpose for this reason I came to die. And so then the superintendent said, well, he died because the people misunderstood him. He died to set us a good example. Well, what kind of example is that? I mean, we're all supposed to go die. And the meeting took a completely different direction. By that one question, why did Jesus die? And now we're on the approach, starting Wednesday, to Easter. And Easter, Resurrection Sunday, is about resurrection. But before one is resurrected, one must do what? Die. And so at the centerpiece of Christianity is a dying God. That is a source of embarrassment to many people. And it's one of the major criticisms that Islam makes of Christianity that they would make of a God and worship someone who died an ignoble death on a malefactor's cross. So that's the central question that we're going to address in the next uh, few weeks why did Jesus die? The scriptures goes, go into a lot of detail about this question. It holds it up like a diamond and says, look at the different facets because it's complicated. It's multifaceted. It was one human being dying on a cross, but it had cosmic and eternal implications for God and for man and for the universe and for the earth. And so the Bible uses some big words to describe the different facets of the answer to that question, why did Jesus die? In fact, some of the words are so big that some of our more modern translations don't use them. They're multisyllabic. And instead, as attempting to communicate, uh, instead of substitution, they will say Jesus died in the place of. Instead of propitiation, the translation will say, you know, uh, lay down his life for. means the same thing. But if you can take that one word and manage to say all the syllables you have a word that captures and sums up and communicates that aspect of why did Jesus die. One author has called them great gospel words. 
So I'd like to cover one with you this morning, and it allows us to start at the best place at the beginning. The beginning is why. What need was being met? What deficiency was being fulfilled? What requirements were being fulfilled? We start with the problem to which Jesus' death was the solution. And we begin with this terrible, multi-slapped word, depravity. Depravity. Next week, for example, we might look at imputation. And one week, maybe we might look at imputation. The reason I, uh, I pause is because, to let you know, we have about 15, 18, 20 words that we could use, and we have six or seven Sundays. So we're going to select them and give you enough to be able to understand it. Well, let's start with propitiation. We're looking in your Bibles at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And what Paul is doing in Ephesians is in the first long paragraph, which is almost all of it one long sentence, verses uh, 1 through 14, he talks about the blessings that God has poured out upon his people, the theology of it, and he talks about uh, election and irresistible grace. He says that uh, God has poured this out upon the people that he chose, and then he worked in their lives to bring them to himself. And then in verses 15 to the end of the chapter, he has a great prayer. He is uh, so impressed and overwhelmed by the truths that he shared, his response is doxological, give glory to God, and he did that in a great prayer. And then when he gets down to chapter 2, he's going to illustrate chapter 1. He's going to give a concrete example, you see. Later on today, we'll be rejoicing in why did Jesus die at this supper. And there will be bread and there will be drink and representing the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. They will be examples to us, metaphors that our eye can see and our fingers can touch and our lips and taste buds can relate to because we are a sensory people. God has given us senses. So God wants to communicate to us in all different ways. Jesus, uh, Paul here said, let me give you an example of what I just described in chapter 1. And so it begins as, as for you. Well, what is the example? The example is the Ephesian people, the church in Ephesus. Now, every sermon should have an application. And what if the application began? Now, as for you, that'd make you sit up, wouldn't it? Say, well, theology's nice and prayer is good, but now you're kind of meddling. <laughs> you know, let's talk about God and Jesus. Uh, now you're going to talk about us? And he jumps right into it. As for you. You can see people kind of looking around at each other saying, okay, here it comes. 
you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Whoa. What worse could you say about someone? No, I wasn't. I was a successful merchant. I was a silversmith. I was a member of the city council. I was an orator. I mean, I was a father. I was a mother. I was a child. Uh, I've been in this area long, longer than you were. You're just a young guy that came to Ephesus here. I wasn't dead. I was very much alive. He says, but I'm talking about you were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, he's talking there about the inner person, the spirit of a person, the unseen part of a person. And he says, you're dead because that part of you died. It died in the Garden of Eden through your ancestors, Adam and Eve. And it was transmitted on to you, you know, genetically, physically, emotionally, spiritually, because you were their children, and they could only produce children after their own likeness. He said, you inherited it. He, in this chapter, or in this se- uh, section, verses 1 through 10, he will repeat himself and say it the same thing different ways. And in due course, we'll come to that, but to show you how he does this, he says, uh, <clears throat> He says in verse uh, 3, by nature, objects of wrath, by nature, uh, inherited, part of who we are. He says part of who you are is that your spirit has died. And so the most important part of a person, the spirit, has lost communication and contact with the most important aspect of being a human being, and that is God. God is our creator. He created us to be in communion with him, and now we have lost the antenna. We have lost the battery. We have lost the ability to communicate, understand, hear from, fellowship with God. And that has implications for all of life, to the mind, the heart, the body, the family, the society, the past, the present, and the future. Uh, Sin is serious. He says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. There are two ways to sin. First John says, uh, any transgression of the law is sin. The law is an expression of God's character and his heart and his uh, design and desire for humankind. And so when we break that, we are, it's called sin. The word sin there is hamartia. It means falling short. The picture of an archer who shoots and hits the target at 50 yards but the arrow can't make it to 150, and it falls short, you see. And the other word is transgression. That is when you actually break the law. 
transgress. You, you go against it. You go over it. You break it. So those are the two aspects of sin. Transgression is breaking it. Breaking the law is sin. But then sin is falling short of the law. So you can break the law of God by commission, transgress it, or omission, fall short of it, not keep it. In other words, you, you messed up going and coming, you know. And it's not just uh, breaking the law, because the law is an expression of the heart of God. You know, you shall not murder. God doesn't want his children to be murdering each other. You, know, you shall not steal. He doesn't want his children to be stealing from each other. So it's not just an arbitrary line. It's the heart of God. And so suppose this uh, person got drunk and they're driving and here's a line of children crossing the road with a guard up there holding a sign. But the driver doesn't see it because of the drunkenness and plows right through and kills two of those children. And those two children belong to one family. So that person has broken the law. That person must pay a penalty, a fine, years in prison, probation. Suppose the person does all that and makes up for breaking the law pays the price, does that heal the heart of the mother of those two children? No. It satisfies the law. Amartya, excuse me, transgressing it. But it doesn't heal the heart of God. There's still a burning hurt, anger, and wrath. So, dead means that part of the human being that can discern God, relate to God, died. And it exhibits itself in breaking the law or not keeping the law. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. Well, it gets worse. Not only does the person have this uh, deficit that they were created with, uh, not only does it exhibit itself in transgressions and sins, but now we're under the sway of this adversary of God, the devil and his demons, whose job it is to de-glorify God and sully his reputation, and he's chosen the most willing participants in that, and that are his wayward, fallen, dead in sin and trespassed children who would rather listen to his voice than to the voice of God, you see. So if you thought it was bad enough being dead in trespasses and sin, he's saying it's worse than that. You're actually under the sway of another influence and under the rule of another king. And he is at work in those who are disobedient. That's another word for uh, sin. Disobedience to the creator. 
Now that gives you the nature of the need, but let's go a little bit um, about the, the scope of it. Because the, the, the effect of it is so great that historically uh, Christianity has used the word depravity and they've used the term total depravity. Methodists do that, and Presbyterians do that, and Roman Catholics do that. Uh, total depravity. Now, that doesn't mean that a person is as bad as they can be because we still have the image of God cracked and broken, but there's still a vestige, a trailing glory to human beings. And they're still capable of doing good, but not from a motive of pleasing God. Depravity means that we always do everything for self. For self. Uh, I just read about a, where was this, a Girl Scout cookie thing. I, I didn't bring it with me. And uh, they were out at this stand selling Girl Scout cookies in the rain. And this man came along and bought all their cookies, $500 worth. He said, so I wanted to get them out of the rain. And someone took a picture, and it was on the website of the Girl Scouts, and it went viral, and there are thousands of you know, touches and likes. And then it turned out he was a drug dealer, and he was arrested, and he's now in jail awaiting prison. The money he used uh, to buy the cookies was from children and adults who were becoming addicted and lost everything, their family, their friends, their job, their homes, their cars, their reputation, their health, their freedom. So he did a good act, right? But he did it with bad money. And that's what depravity is. Even when we do good... We do it from bad motives because we can't do anything else. Now, quick to say here, doing good is doing good. In fact, Christendom, have you heard that term? Christendom is where Christianity has had enough of an influence and an impact that it has actually helped uh, formulate the laws in an area and helped create an ethos a fear of God. And that Christendom has a good influence. What has happened in Western civilization now is that we have lost the Christendom, you see. And so we no longer believe that all men are created equal and endowed by the Creator of certain inalienable rights. We don't believe that anymore. And we took that flower and we cut the stem, and it still has some beauty to it, but it's wilting. And we are seeing that without Christendom, without the influence of Christianity, without the salt and the light, civilization starts quickly devolving because the cornerstone of civilization are the people, and if they are depraved, they will go back to their natural state. And that's why Christians, to be salt and light, need to be involved in their community and be at school board meetings to talk about what's going to be taught in the schools and be at city council meetings to talk about how they're going to make rules and regulations. 
and elect people to office that do have a fear of God and understanding of the image of God in man and the need to restrain depravity but also encourage good works. So doing good is still good, and we encourage it. But we don't think by doing good that that makes that person right with God. Because that drug dealer did good, but he's still going to jail for his drugs. And the question is, are the Girl Scout organization going to give back the $500? Ill boot and got him. Ill gotten booty, you know. So my, my mother used to say, uh, yam dankies, you know. So it was ill gotten booty. So we're not going to say it was a good act, but it came from a, money came from a bad source. And so when we talk about depravity, we're talking about the source. We're talking about the core of a person. One of our favorites, teachers, R.C. Sproul, a blessed memory now, he points out the hinge upon, he says, um, are human beings basically good or basically evil? The hinge upon which the argument turns is the word basically. It's a universal concept that nobody is imperfect. We accept the maxim, to err is human. Right? And then he goes on to say further, total depravity means radical corruption. There's a difference between total depravity and utter depravity. In other words, you're not as bad as you can be, but you're bad off as you can be. To be utterly depraved is to be as wicked as one could possibly be. Hitler was utterly depraved. And he says, uh, but we're not talking about utter depravity, you know, just as bad as you can be. We're talking about total depravity, and this is what it means. Um, We're corrupt in the totality of our being. There is no part of us that is left untouched by sin. Our minds, our wills, and our bodies are affected by evil. We speak sinful words, do sinful deeds, have impure thoughts, and our very bodies suffer from the ravages of sin. In fact, that's how we know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Because the wages of sin is death, and how many die? All. So if all die and death is the result of sin, all must be sinful. Our problem with sin is that it's, uh, again, from R.C. Sproul, our problem with sin is that it is rooted on the core, in the core of our being. It permeates our hearts. It is because sin is at our core and not merely at the exterior of our lives that the Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. And again, the scripture doesn't say is incapable and doesn't do good. Civilization counts on doing good and encouraging good and rewarding evil. It means that it always comes from a corrupt heart and a corrupt motive and it will always be for self and not for glorifying God. And then that has a result. I mean, the, the greatest condemnation of the human race 
is that the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory of the only begotten Son of God. He came to his own, and the, all his own did not receive him. The Son of God came as a man. He never thought an impure thought. He never felt a rebellious feeling. He always did and said what his father wanted him to do. He said, which of you condemns me of sin? And no one took it up. He only did good to heal and to feed and to teach. And what did we, the human race, do with him? We killed him. Now, if that, and those were people that were good. They were much better than the pagans. They had a fear of God. They honored God. They gave tithes and offerings and alms. And even the good ones killed the righteous person. That is what depravity, that is what utter depravity, and that is what total depravity means. Now, we just need to face this. Because if we don't correctly diagnose the problem, then we have no hope of finding the cure. Is that not right? Diagnosis comes before treatment. And we have to diagnose it and realize that we are utterly, totally depraved. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Our minds cannot understand God. Our hearts cannot respond to him. Our wills are free only to choose sin. Without God and without hope in the world. And that's why he says, and as for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. You were under Satan's sway. By nature, objects of wrath. Wrath, that makes it even worse. Well, that's what comes on people that rebel against a creator king and take every good thing that God has given and turns it to evil. Sex, turn to evil. Blessings of money, turn to evil. And so a holy God, a loving God, will explode with anger and wrath and say, destroy this criminal. So, no, anyway, it's, it's a bad situation. And he says, as for you, this was you. But then, thank God, he comes down here in verse 4. But. That's the best word in Scripture, guys. But. Is that the end of the story? Dad, you expect me to go to bed and go to sleep now, and, and you've told me about total and utter depravity and wrath. Am I supposed to sleep well with that? Well, no, 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 no. Stay awake a little bit longer because there's a but. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Now, look how it describes God, rich in mercy. 
Now, we know God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. There's no limit to his riches. But here's a better thing. He's rich in mercy, compassion, love, whatever you want there. Those are his riches. And I'm sure glad he's got those because in my depraved, fallen situation, all those other riches are not going to do me a lot of good. They may clean me up and dress me better and put me in a better house and a better car, but they're not going to change my nature. It's his mercy that will change my nature. And look at this verse now. You ready? Made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. Now, and this is called love. Grace is by grace you have been saved. And grace is God's response to our need. Now, what do we bring to the table? Need. That's all we bring. Deficit. Emptiness. If the answer, the cure, were laying right there, because of our fallen nature, we couldn't see it, recognize it. We couldn't want it. And we couldn't even reach out and grab it. That is the definition of dead, is it not? Mind, heart, soul, body. Now notice this. He, uh, he made us alive with Christ. We'll come back to with Christ. Even when we were dead. Okay. When does God do this to a person? Is it after they repent? Is it after they change and clean up their lives? Is it after they believe? No, he says when you're still dead, a dead person can't repent, a dead person can't believe, a dead person can't understand. When does the new birth, regeneration, there's one of those multisyllabic words, when does regeneration occur? Regeneration occurs, must occur, has to occur before repentance and faith and belief take place. Is that not logical? So then, when a person comes and says, I want to believe on Jesus Christ, at what point do they become born again? After they believe or before? If they can't believe until they're born again because they're dead, they have to be born again before they even believe. Do you understand the logic of that? So when I was at the Billy Graham crusade, and people come down, even in the balconies, your friends will wait for you. And we'll sing just as I am until you make it down here. And if you come down here, and repent and believe you will be born again. No one left their seat until they were born again. Because they couldn't. They would say, this is foolishness. This is the stupidest thing I ever heard. This guy's going to die, and that's going to do me any good? And that satisfies God's wrath. What, what, what? He lived 2,000 years ago. What's that got to do with me? I want something for today. That would be the response to Billy Graham. 
But God reaches up there, even while dead. What does it say? Even when we were dead, he made us alive. And so that new birth comes. And so I don't need to persuade anyone to be born again. God handles that. My job is to deliver this news and start at the beginning. You are depraved. As for you, you are depraved, utterly depraved, without hope and without God. And the only way you're going to get out of this situation is if God gives you new life and puts light in your mind and softens your hard rock's heart and gives you a new nature so that you can then say, that makes sense. I never saw it before, but that makes sense. Oh, I want this. I never wanted this in my life, but now I want it. What do I need to do? Oh, it's a treasure found in a field. Let me go sell everything I've got and come and buy that field so I can have that treasure. What, what, what brings about that transformation? Is it my great preaching? Is it your sharing over the back fence or over some coffee? We deliver the medicine. God makes the medicine work. It's not your job and it's not my job. And so I don't have to go get my hair waved so that I look better up here so that I can do a better job. It's the word of God that makes that change in people's heart. And they're born again, and then they say, well, let me turn away from my sin. I now hate my sin. And let me turn to God if by chance he might receive me through Jesus Christ. Have you ever led a person to Christ and seen it happen before your eyes? And you're just awed. What in the world just happened? God just gave new life to that person while they were dead. And as far as I was concerned, it was a waste of my time to share the gospel with them. But while they were dead, you know the best people to share the gospel with? Dead people. (laughs) Dead people and transgressions. So if you find a dead person that's sinning away, they're the candidate for the cure. He says, by grace, by grace, God raised us up with Christ and seated us in the heavenly realms in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. He repeats himself. It is by grace, God's response. He said, there's nothing in you that is attractive, but I accept your need. And I'm going to respond to your need, even if it means my son dying on a cross. Through faith and not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And then let's finish with this. Made us alive with Christ. Raised us up with Christ. Our identification is with Christ. That's what baptism is. It's a symbol of being united with Christ. And so what's true about him then becomes true about us. 
Next week, imputation. Our sin for his righteousness. With Christ, we are saved. With Christ, we are raised. In Christ, all these things happen. How do I get in Christ? By him giving us new birth in which we repent of our sins and turn to God. If you want that, then that's a sign that God is working in your heart. And you say, God, give me desire. Open my eyes. Soften my heart. Free my will from the shackles. And let me respond to the grace of God as he gives me the faith to respond. Isn't that right? Well, what should our response be to this? First of all, appreciation. Not only do we not earn it, we didn't deserve it. And it's purely from a God rich in mercy who pours out this mercy and responded to our uttermost need with his uttermost sacrifice. And secondly, compassion. Compassion. Your friend, your neighbor, your co-worker is like you used to be. Transgressions and sins, death, under the power and influence of the spirit of the air, following the desires of the flesh. If I want to do it, I'm going to do it. feels good, it can't be wrong. This is my life, I'm going to live it the way it is. God gave me the freedom to enter it. Have compassion on They know not what they do. And then finally, wouldn't this result in outreach and evangelism? If you see people lost and trapped, don't you want to rescue them? Don't you say, that was me. And someone told me, shared the good news, and God used that in my life to give me a new life. If the Satan is ruling all around here, our job is to attack the fortress. And the gates of hell should not prevail against that kind of an attack. We have got victory promised before we even attack. The Holy Spirit, God said to Paul, don't be discouraged. I have many people in this place. Keep preaching. Keep sharing. Keep ministering. Because I'm going to use that seed and reap a harvest. But go with compassion and appreciation. Because as for you, that's where you were at one time. How great is the mercy and the grace of God. Manifold, unmeasurable to meet so great a need as we might have. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your great mercy and grace that you might give your son that our unutterable need might be met by an invaluable sacrifice. Thank you for your great mercy poured out upon us. We thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen.